Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 26, 2020, and my guest is economist and author Branko Milanovic. He is a visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center of CUNY, the City University of New York, and a senior scholar at CUNY's Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guest with the Blackwire 5220 headset. This is Bronco's second appearance on Incon Talk. He was last here in May of 2020, which seems like about 25 years ago, talking about his book, Capitalism Alone. Bronco, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. It's really a pleasure. It was really a pleasure last May, which now seems like really a different world. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Our topic for today is what we might call the big questions of economics. You've argued recently on Twitter and in a PowerPoint presentation that the Nobel Prize should be awarded for those big questions. So we're going to talk about what those big questions are, what they might be, what we know and don't know about them. And I just want to start with the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, What's your criticism of the decisions that are being made to award it? Uh, you know, it started actually relatively by accident because, uh, you know, when uh, the the prize was awarded, I was I expressed my surprise. Actually, I you know I don't know the work of uh, the, the authors, so I'm actually not going obviously today to comment on that. Uh, I'm, I'm not even qualified to do that. But uh, what actually I think is is a, a deeper issue, and uh, I think it is something that is shared by many people, is that uh, that um, uh, the sort of uh, approach which is used and the type of work which is being rewarded, not only this year, but generally speaking, is the work which is from methodological point of view and from the view of economics as a science is relatively narrow. And I will explain that not only in terms of uh, big questions, questions being left aside, but even in the view of the world which essentially sees the last 100 years of a capitalist system as the only thing that economists should study. So these are my uh, sort of critiques. So they're not really directed towards this year's uh, winners, not towards the last year's winners, nor anybody in particular. It's just, I think, a general criticism. Yeah, I suggested in a recent interview I did with, with Stephen Levitt that has not aired yet, uh, that and will have aired by the time this this episode is is released. Yeah, uh, that the Nobel Prize goes to the best academic work. The be- person does the best job as a professor, not the person who makes the biggest contribution to the truth or to our understanding. Or it's like it's it's a little bit of who's best at playing the academic game. And I see that as part of your criticism that the academic system. In the United States, certainly, and, and perhaps elsewhere, is structured in a way that discourages people from looking at big questions, that, that it's hard for people with uh, views outside the mainstream to be heard or to be honored or recognized. Am I, am I reading you correctly? No, you are absolutely. I think there are really two elements. There is the first element that they said really what is economics methodologically and in terms of the topics that it needs to study. For example, just to give an extreme example, I think actually that somebody who is studying, let's suppose, Roman economic 
development or system should be really in sort of a purview of the Nobel Prize. But, you know, that's very unlikely to, to happen, although we had like, uh, you know, a couple of economic historians. Uh, and the second point is more of a, what this is called the sociology of, of science in the sense that basically, uh, you know, there are gatekeepers, there are people who decide on that, they know each other, they of course give prizes to each other. And actually, not only that it's bad in the sense that they are bad guys who basically just give prizes to each other, they honestly don't know what exists outside of that. So, you know, this, this is the second, the second issue. And let me just say one more thing about the, the big topic and big topics, and we will talk about them in a minute. Uh, Paul Krugman, actually, in response to my Twitter, agreed with some of my points, but he basically said, it's not really the big topics per se that matter. And I agree with that. You know, I cannot say that, okay, I'm going to write, uh, you know, I don't know, history of humankind and economics, put the title, and I want to get a Nobel Prize because I just put a nice title. Uh, it's not the big topic per se. It's the importance of the topic and the work on that topic. So if there is no work which is worthwhile, then obviously that's not the, 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 the question. So that's what I wanted just to say. It's not really the big topic per se. It means to be something more. A contribution, yeah. Uh, Dan Klein, somewhere in Econ Talk, or at least in my private conversations with him, I think it was in an Econ Talk episode, talks about the challenge of groupthink in, in economics, making the argument again that it's, you know, it's, it's in the water. When you're swimming in the water, it's, um, it's hard to notice there's anything other than the, the fish that you can see. It's, <laughs> it's what your environment is. And I think for most economists, they've stopped thinking long ago, most of us have in general, we, we don't like to think about what we might be missing, what might be important outside of, of our purview. And, of course, that's how we define what economics is. It's the stuff I think is important or interesting or yeah. I'm good at. Uh, so that's it. perhaps um, perhaps not so surprising. I, I think this question of, of contribution is, is, is important. But I would add, and I would say this to all young aspiring economists who are listening as well as non-economists, uh, there's a lot to be said for a good question. Uh, good answers are, are often crucial, right. important, but sometimes the best questions can't be answered, and we learn something from our attempts to answer them or to narrow what possible answers there are, even if we don't come up with definitive answers. And I think in academic life today, to come back to this question of gatekeepers and, and groupthink, uh, Good questions that don't get answered precisely don't get much reward. You, you generally don't thrive in academic life right now if you raise a big question or a good question and struggle to answer it. You're more rewarded for yeah. asking a small question and answering it definitively. Uh, maybe that's just my uh, – you know, I'm semi-outside of academic economics – maybe totally outside it. Maybe that's just my justification. But what, what do you think about that? No, I, I totally agree. You know, I'm also a little bit outside in the sense that basically by, by this age, uh, you you are, uh, how should I say, you're free to say whatever you want. You know, for younger people, and I see because people who are trying to make their career, it's it's very difficult to actually not follow a given stream uh, simply because otherwise you're not going to get a job or you'll get really a very inferior job and you will be left aside and so on. And then what happens, I think, which is normal and natural in all our 
way of life is that once you actually get a job and then you basically sort of um, absorb that point of view, you start believing that point of view. So uh, by the time you are 45 or 50, you're really a big believer in something that maybe you were somewhat doubtful when you were 25. So I think this is what what happens. I also think there, just so that I don't forget that, I think there are also two other functions that uh, big prizes in economics, not only Nobel Prize, but you know, whatever other prize or in other sciences should actually have in mind. One is what they call the, uh, and you mentioned it also, the signaling function. It's in other words, it should really signal the issues, the topics that are important. As you said before, you know, it's like the issues of like even raising the big questions and trying to answer them. Like, uh, you know, there are many big questions will come in a minute, but you know, you cannot have the definite answer on that. I mentioned before that the Industrial Revolution, we still don't have a definite answer to that, but it's nevertheless a big question. It's nevertheless one area that has been worked a lot from Adam Smith onward. And the second function, which I think also is important, is a didactic function in some sense, which, for example, I think Nobel Prize in in literature often does. It picks up authors from smaller literatures and actually gives them prominence. So it does not mean necessarily that this year the best author was somebody who is, I suppose, some small, like uh, uh, you you take Svetlana Alexeyevich from Belarus. She may not have been the, I mean, she's probably a great author, actually. I read something, of, but I'm just saying that you have also a function of promoting somebody who otherwise would not have been known. And yeah. I think these two functions are really also important. Yeah, that's a, uh, we're not going to talk about the actual incentives facing the Nobel Prize Committee, but at the Bank of Sweden, but you're, you're making the, the point that we could imagine uh, a role that the prize does not play right now uh, in honoring um, discordant voices, unorthodox voices, um, radical voices. And the profession is um, is not very good at that as it's currently structured. It certainly yeah. tends to to be focused on what what we might call the mainstream. I just want to make a side comment about the sociology of of uh, of what's you said when you turn 45, you, you, you've forgotten it's even something that's on the table. And right. one of the challenges of being outside the mainstream, as I am, uh, both ideologically, methodologically, in many, many ways, is that when I see the people on the inside, I, I don't necessarily think I'm right and they're wrong. Well, I do sometimes. But what's <laughs> often more striking is how I, I see that they haven't thought about that they could be wrong in so long that they don't even think it's a question. You know, their methodology, oh. their techniques, their framework for looking at reality is so – the grooves are so <laughs> deep that when you yeah. raise the possibility that they might be wrong, they're just like puzzled. They can't even begin to think of what would – I mean, it's, they're so matter-of-fact about – their worldview. And I think you know, it's a part of the human condition. It's, it's certainly you know, a yeah. question of how you might overcome that individually. But you're raising the question of how you might overcome it institutionally. Um, you know, one way it's done, of course, is to create programs in universities. George Mason comes to mind. There are others that, that try to swim against the mainstream and do things a little bit differently. So that, that's one way in which right. this hierarchy gets disrupted, I guess. 
You know, this is what I got, I mean, when I wrote uh, my tweet, actually. First I wrote a small tweet, then I actually wrote a little bit longer. It was a thread. Uh, I, I thought a little bit when I wrote this thread. And generally, I would say I got extremely good uh, response. Even I was surprised that some people that I was not expecting that they would actually agree, they they agreed and retweeted and so on. On the other hand, obviously, you get also, and I got also some pushback, uh, and that pushback was exactly like you said. I don't think that these people are, um, you know, how should I say, that they are, uh, uh, they were going against me or they were simply expressing something they didn't, didn't believe. They actually were expressing, I think, a disbelief that somebody may not be able to understand what is so obvious to them. And I think that's actually what happens. You're the groups are so sort of strong. You're, you're so much into that way of thinking. So it's not really the question of a topic. It's a question of a way of thinking and what is important. And they cannot understand, I think, that there could be a different way of looking at issues and that there are different issues that are important. And that's why actually in order to preempt that, I said, look, these are really the big issues that I think nobody can dispute that they're big issues and they have been totally left aside. So that was my argument about the big issues and, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, one uh, single-mindedness of the price. And the last thing I'll say on this is that, you know, once you have a journal devoted to something and there's referees and there's things that get published, Everybody just sort of assumes it's real. That it, you know, I, I right. recently interviewed Daniel Habern, the philosopher on happiness research. And I have to confess, I have a lot of trouble understanding how this can be a serious area of research. The idea that you would go along and ask thousands of people to pick a number between, say, one and seven or one and 10 as to their level of happiness, knowing for sure that what that means to someone is very different than it means to someone else. Then we're going to add them up and take an average. And that number is going to have, well, yes, I can run regressions with it. I can I can compare it from in the past to the present. I can look across countries. But no one's, it's really hard for folks, I think, to step back and go, like, what are we actually doing here? Because there's a journal and it's published. And yeah, so yeah. I hate to pick yeah. on, on happiness research. Well, no, I don't hate to pick on. I think it's bizarro. But anyway, that's just an example, I think, where once you're in the field, it just becomes like, yeah, I did a paper on that. So what's what's the question? You know, I mean, people have been saying for, for ages that economics is extremely self-referential, but what is interesting is self-referential only within the current time. Actually, it was also said, and I had really some nice quotes about that, that's the only practical, only social science that does not really relate in a in a sustained way with its origins. You know, that's what, of course, you for know, sure. Ricardo Marx, so no relationship at all. So that's actually very unusual because people are saying like jurisprudence, for example, political science refers to the, its origin and the original creators of it is. But uh, what is self-referential also is interesting. It is sort of more anecdotal, but I think it's still nevertheless uh, relevant, is that very often, actually, I remember a person that I knew, and uh, when, I, when there would be an issue, I mean, ordinary issue in ordinary life, uh, he or she, so I'm not going to reveal uh, even the gender, uh, would generally sort of refer 
to that as in the paper. So for example, you have an issue which happens today in the world and he or she would say, well, this was actually studied in such and such paper in 1977, Journal of Political Economy. So basically inability even to actually see real life, real life can exist only if it is reflected in the article which was published. And that I thought, because that person was working actually also in behavioral economics, I thought it was really weird because, you know, uh, you know, observing reality, and this is of course something that I mentioned before, observing reality in all cases of large developments economics was absolutely crucial. Even more recently, I, I mentioned that, for example, does anybody uh, not believe that without the Great Depression, there will be no general theory? You know, it's not that general theory was written because Keynes went to Mars and decided to write the general theory. It was written because he was faced with the real world problem. So he was observing the real world problem. And that I find really quite extraordinary. Yeah, I'm not going to name names either, but the number of economists who said we don't we haven't we don't need to learn anything new from the Great Recession and the financial complexity of it yeah. because it was all in our models already. I find that strange because partly because I know that most of the people in our field, for example, don't know, they only know one of those things. They might know macroeconomics, but they don't know finance. So they might know uh -huh. finance, but they don't know macro. And the idea that therefore, I don't know, that, uh, let's put that to the side. Um, but I think the idea of the self-referential part is extremely interesting. Uh, it's certainly part of the norms of journal writing, uh, article writing, that you don't have to reference anything before 1977 in general, and certainly nothing outside of published academic research. Um, but anyway, let, let's go on. The, yeah. you, you, you write the more interesting, perhaps, uh, part, <coughs> which this is all prelude, the more interesting part of your observations are, is, excuse me, the most interesting part is the, is the question of what are the big questions? What have we learned or not learned about them? Uh, and you start off with China. Uh, talk about China. Why what what we failed? Why we failed here? You know, Russ, what I actually find extraordinary about China, and uh, I mentioned that there is a really big absence of the how should I say the rewards or you know acknowledgement given to the work on China, is because if you were to select one topic which has really transformed lives of so many people, one fourth practically of mankind. And I believe after the Industrial Revolution and probably uh, after maybe the U.S. Uh, rise to superpower, economic superpower status in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, this is the third biggest, um, third event whose size may be even dwarfing the other previous two events. So we are really happy, this is happening in real time. And let me give you an example that, of course, you would love because it goes back with Adam Smith. Adam Smith is observing the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, the transformation into a commercial society. And the entire work of, of the wealth of nations, and actually, as, as you, of course, um, highlight the theory of moral sentiments, is based on observing these relations between individuals at home with each other and between themselves and the wider community. And we are now in, I think, in a very similar position. We are observing really a unique event of an incredibly huge size. And we are, in whether we criticize the Nobel Prize, we are not rewarding people who have actually said something. Now, just to complete, to finish that, I'm not sure that we have a definitive answer on China. 
uh, probably will never have it. Uh, no, Chinese don't have it. Americans don't have it. Nobody has it. But there are certainly people who have worked on China, uh, on, from the economics of China, and who have come up with some you know, interesting insights. I mean, I remember for myself, uh, when I was actually teaching at some point, it was maybe more uh, particularly that topic on transition in China, Martin Weizmann, you know, who wrote about um, uh, township and village enterprises in China. Uh, for me, that was a kind of revelatory article because it basically goes and discusses everything that these uh, uh, TVEs do, which is against neoclassical approach, starting with very non-transparent property rights, uh, uh, dual price system, basically everything. And that was for me absolutely, you know, stunning. I said, like, why is this happening? What do we know about that? And this is, I'm just going one example, because obviously this is not an area I, you know, I've written obviously on China, but I'm not going to pull names, this guy or that guy, but it is really something that, that is worthwhile highlighting. I feel the same way about China. Uh, I think it's the central economic event of our lifetime. Uh, it's an extraordinary event historically, uh, the transformation of, of standard living. And people on, quote, my side, the free market-oriented people, say, well, we know why China got rich. They tried, they used markets. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, they did use markets more than they did before, but they did a lot of other stuff that's not market-oriented. Yeah. Immense immense investment in infrastructure, immense transformation of, of property rights in complicated ways. And of course, if you're like me, prone to like free markets and neoclassical economics, you're going to say, well, they let people keep what they, more of what they created. And that's why they grew. And that has something to do with it. I, I, I believe that. But you can't just pretend they went from a free, from a say a socialist, authoritarian, communist system to a free market system. They didn't do that. So how do you account for the significance of what was left? And of course, it's easy to say, well, they'd have grown even more if they'd been more free market oriented, which could be true. But where's the evidence? I mean, what's other than a prior belief, which is you know what we all have. Uh, so so I think it's a. It's kind of important. And the question then becomes, um, what might a scholar, a seeker after truth, what might they use to get more information on that? What would be the approach? The modern economics approach would be to get some data uh, on China's growth rate. And then we need a measure of how free market China is or proportion of enterprises owned by the state or name it, you know, a dummy variable for when they liberalize this. That's not probably going to be that effective given the complexity of all the changes and all the things we don't have data on. So one response to your claim is, so we're never going to know. We can't know. And what would you have us do? If, what, what, how might a young person interested in this question, oblivious to the fact that the Nobel Prize doesn't reward it very well, how, how might they proceed? No, I, I mean, I think actually we would, because that's the nature of economics. You know, I don't believe that economics comes with, you know, or when it looks at historical events, comes really with the answers that are absolutely unimpeachable. I mean, I, I said before that we still have an argument, and it was one of my other big questions, about what propelled the, the Industrial Revolution in England. You have, you know, obviously several very strong hypotheses there. 
so we will never know exactly on hap- what happened in China because it is first, it is in the nature of the problem that it is not a problem that is solvable per se. We will never know why Roman Empire, you know, sort of disintegrated and fell. You know, there was somebody who did actually many years ago, I think 220 different explanations for that. So, but uh, I think what is, what is absolutely uh, uh, without doubt true now, first, it is the biggest economic event of our lifetime. And it's probably one of the biggest events in the history, economic history of mankind. Yeah. And secondly, it, the, uh, the way that it happened is not easily subsumed or understood by any very sort of a, a narrow, confined theory. It's neither neoclassical, it's not classical, it's not Marxist. It's really a combination which is very unique. Now, whether it is unique to China or whether it is something which is actually a new way of doing things or whether it actually follows up on uh, Japan and South Korea and whether it could be exported elsewhere, all of these different questions. But I think that actually uh, uh, I would not be at all uh, averse to the idea actually having, you know, two different people with somewhat different answers being actually singled out, you know, working on China, because we don't have a single answer. But we all agree that it is something which really combined in a very creative and actually, I think, very often haphazard way of uh, different elements. Uh, was it, um, uh, it's really, uh, it's, uh, is it Ferguson, actually, whom you, you like, Adam Ferguson, who talked about stumbling upon the solutions. And that's what I think China did, actually. It stumbled. And they, when you look, actually, how it happened, it was really by sort of stumbling, going one way, then making experiments, then going further and so on. But that's how the Industrial Revolution in England happened. It didn't happen that somebody had a blueprint, we are, we are going to have the Industrial Revolution today. It happened by small details, by things which were changed and then worked and others didn't work. So that's actually how it happened. So I think it's, it's really, there is no doubt, this is the biggest event in, in our lifetime. And somehow it is actually left out because it was supposed with this narrow view of economics, which is like, you know, problem solving of small kind, it is kind of left out because somehow it does not fit. I mean, this whole elephant, huge in the room, doesn't fit into that small niche that we are actually going to study. And I think that's that's uh, one of the problems. Yeah, so for listeners, yeah, you were referencing Adam Ferguson, the Scottish Adam Ferguson, philosopher, yeah. political economist, thinker, whatever you want to label him who was a contemporary of, of Adam Smith, lived a little before him. Um, I want to say something uh, that might advance our understanding, and I'd like your take on it. Uh, see, for me, when I see these kind of challenging multi-causal situations, which are you know, very characteristic of history generally, uh, you know, I use the example of what caused the Civil War. What was the cause of World War I? It's not an answerable question. History doesn't pretend it's an answerable question. So what we try to do is think about not just measuring the contribution of different factors, but trying to rule out certain factors as likely to be small, others likely to be large. We know it's foolish to pretend that we know the percentages that each one contributes. And that would be very powerful, though, to get that a little bit closer on China and one way I would suggest that we could get there, which and, and, and the fact that I can't answer this question suggests to me how important it is, which is what are the stylized facts? What is to be explained and what might and by stylized, we, we mean sort of they're, they're inevitably somewhat 
imperfect in their precision of measurement. So I'll take an example. You know, what proportion of the Chinese economy is was generated privately versus publicly over this time period we're talking about over the last, say, 40 years? Now, that's a somewhat answerable question. Uh, we know some measure of how many people left the countryside and went to the city. Did We know something, presumably, or the Chinese do, about the change in agricultural output from that change. Of course, some of the output that was made in, in rural communities that was created wasn't measured. So some of the gains are somewhat illusory. So these, you know, creating this compendium of, of what's ha- just what's happened, because this, the way that I think most economists look at it, and this is, I think, just an enormous problem, is just like, well, they got more market-oriented. It's not so helpful, right, given that it's not the only thing that happened. So we kind of need to start, to me, and maybe there are people who are doing this now imperfectly. You did somewhat in your book, Capitalism Alone. Certainly, you deserve a Nobel Prize, Bronco. We know, we know that. goes without no saying. Doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but it seems to me this idea of stylized facts is not unimportant, and I have to – Salute Robert Lucas, who was one of my teachers, who emphasized this and thinking about business cycles. You know, you just start by figuring out what is to be explained and what is at hand for thinking about what might explain it. Yeah, well, of course, for China, you know, it is, as you said, actually, all these stylist facts, you know, we can, we, we know them basically. The, uh, and uh, the issue is, I think, and I think it's to some again unsolvable to some extent because we have globalization, we have greater market orientation, which came originally with the double, you know, dual track system on in terms of pricing and uh, uh, with the state quota still existing in those days up to 1990s. We had prioritization of land, we have prioritization of the uh, industrial sector largely, but we still have a large part of obviously the banking, uh, uh, product, uh, steel production, uh, large companies that are really still beholden to some extent to the state or at least related to, to, the, to the state. These are the issues that, as you know, I write about that uh, in, the, in the third chapter of, of Capitalism Alone. So this is all, and globalization and openness. So these are all issues that are, uh, you know, extremely uh, how should I say the com- combination, recombination is unique and, ve- and very challenging for us to understand. I-, I actually read yesterday, for example, by Isabella Weber, who is now at, uh, at uh, uh, Amherst, University of Massachusetts. She's actually a sc- uh, China scholar and just happened to read because, you know, somehow that paper came to me, uh, talking about the, the growth of Shenzhen, which is, as you know, next to Hong Kong. And before, the, before 1978, they they had massive exodus of rural population from China going into Hong Kong. And that was a political issue because these were kind of illegal immigrants into Hong Kong. And of course, they were much better paid in Hong Kong were going there. And what is interesting now to understand, and actually I think probably there was something in the back of the mind of the Chinese leadership, is really the emphasis of Shenzhen, which is actually now growing much faster than Hong Kong, leaving aside whatever happened recently in Hong Kong. But even before that, Shenzhen was actually growing faster. So it's actually a remarkable change in fortunes that happened between these two cities. So these are really many, I think there must be hundreds of examples of that kind, which are really quite spectacular and worthwhile researching. Of course, you know, we talked earlier about the incentives facing young scholars. We don't know, even know if the data are accurate. So if, if I said to you, I want you to work on this problem, say about the relative growth of Shenzhen versus Shenzhen versus 
Hong Kong, you might start by saying, well, I'm not even sure it's a true fact to explain. <laughs> so, you know, that's a risky investment of my scholarly time. So we understand why certainly younger people might be uneasy about these areas. But as you say, the return should be large. It should be a high, a low probability and a high reward to motivate folks to 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 at least try to explain it if it's true. You know, we, we there are many things actually, and I was uh, I'm also criticizing in the book the fact that, for example, from household surveys, we really have now less information than we had five years ago. There are many reasons for that, but basically because China has cracked down on release of information. And uh, when you look at the Chinese numbers in many areas, uh, there is always some doubt about the macro numbers. But, you know, I've been reading for the last year the Wall Street Journal. It, it, let me just make two observations. First one about the present. Uh, despite the fact that they do emit from, you know, to time to time, is industrial production really 6.5% up or not? Uh, they do accept when they start discussing a sort of unambiguous changes, which are actually oftentimes sales of Western product, Western companies' products, or what you observe in the streets, retail trade, and so on. So clearly, what they observe by sort of visually, basically, and what they get from the individual companies, dovetails with, agrees with this broad macro numbers. And the second observation, which actually struck me as somebody who has not read the Wall Street Journal, I mean, until now, is that if somebody had told me, I mentioned that on Twitter, in 1980, that really one half, I think, literally, of a daily edition of the Wall Street Journal would be spent on uh, uh, economics of China, including individual companies, uh, you know, uh, this production, that production, sales, uh, exports, and imports, you, you would actually think that this guy is, is crazy. Because, and actually, that's an you know, interesting topic, not maybe for economists, but for others, to look what is the percentage of the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, that was uh, sort of spent on China in 1980. It probably was like 1%, because there was nothing really much to write about. And now it is really after, after the economic developments in the U.S., it's by far number two in terms of simple uh, space that is spent like a paper space. So that's an incredible transformation, which actually simply confirms what we were saying before. This is really a, an event of our an economic sphere and possibly in geopolitical, an event of our times. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm going to... I'm going to sh let's shift gears. I'm going to pick one of my favorite big questions. Yeah. I don't think we've made much progress on or people spend much time on uh, and get your reaction to it. And then we'll come back to your list. Uh, and that's competition. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about the power of competition. I think it's undervalued and under misunderstood by the general public. And I think one of the great contributions of economics is to un help people understand the role of competition, how it's not like uh, athletic competition. It's not winner take all generally. There are some exceptions. But in general, we all can benefit. Most of us can benefit from competition, how it encourages the wiser use of resources. Uh, it pushes prices down, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my story in general. And I'm as a free market guy, that's kind of at the heart of, of my worldview. It's, it's what I believe protects consumers generally uh, from bad behavior and exploitation. It's what protects workers and so on. On the other side are the people who see market power everywhere. Uh, the reason the wages are low here is because of market power. And if you say, well, what does that mean exactly? They don't have a good explanation. But then again, I don't have a good explanation for what competition is. So when you say to me, I gave 
this example again, talking to St- Stephen Levitt the other day. Uh, that episode has probably been released by the time you hear this one. Uh, you know, real estate agents have to compete with one another, and that reduces their ability to exploit their inside knowledge that they could use in theory to take advantage of sellers who maybe might want a higher price, but the real estate agent might want a lower price to sell the house more quickly. And my answer to that as a Chicago-trained economist is that, oh, but there's competition among real estate agents. They can't do that. And then when you ask me, well, how do you know? The answer is eh, my prior beliefs yeah. or, or what protects a tourist. You're a tourist. You're in, uh, you're in a new country, new city, and you go into the marketplace, literally the shook. The market, the place where people are haggling, there aren't posted prices. I think most of us believe that tourists tend to pay too much. And we have an answer for that. They don't have uh, as much information about the existing prices, and they don't know what a high price is that allows them to walk away. But why doesn't a seller say, well, if I charge a high price, I'll lose potentially this customer to someone else? And the answer, of course, is, well, maybe they don't know it's a high price. But even as a tourist, I tend to look, I shop around. And I think if you shop around as a tourist, you get the same high price from almost everyone. So why is it that that happens? There's lots of sellers. It may not be true, of course. I'm I'm picking this example as a stylized example. And similarly, there can be cases where there's two sellers and it's very competitive. And we don't have much information about the nature of when competition serves customers and maybe when it doesn't serve customers so well. And I don't, I find that strange that there's almost no, as far as I know, almost no research on how to think about that. That's true. That's not really a topic that I know much about, so I will not, uh, you know, add too much. But when you mentioned uh, about when you mentioned the case of tourists and going somewhere, of course, we are to some extent. When you show up, for example, you go to Italy, you show up. You're obviously a beneficiary of the existence of the market in the sense that it is something, an institution, which has already been formed. So you basically come there, you get to buy whatever you're haggling about at a price that in principle was already determined by the people who live there or people who came and the tourists and others. Now, it could be, you know, and of course, we have all seen that that in some cases, which are very touristy, that not necessarily the price may not be the same, but the behavior may be much worse towards you than, than you would expect because they have, uh, it's really, you would think from the individual point of view, like, a, let's suppose, somebody working like a waiter or in a restaurant, it's irrelevant for him whether you're satisfied or not with your service because the supply of tourists is going to be endless. So actually, basically, you are irrelevant. You you can maybe never come back to that restaurant, but it doesn't matter. However, as we discussed in the previous uh, conversation that we had, uh, uh, maybe there's some advantage now. The advantages come from the ability of you to judge on the internet or to put your sort of view about the service of the restaurant or whatever happened there. So it's actually interesting that there is a feedback now which might not have existed in the past and which might push that person to behave a little bit differently. Uh, but, um, you know, this is uh, something that, I mean, competition indeed is, is a, I think it's obviously a, a public good, actually, in that sense. You know, it is something that we benefit uh, without our, our, I mean, our contribution is uh, obviously infinitesimal. And of course, the, we take the benefit from everybody else doing the same thing. Yeah, the last thing I want to add on this is that what I'm suggesting, I think 
partly, not the only thing, but part of what I'm suggesting is that we need something like case studies. We need something where someone delves deeply into the mechanics and in and out and details and logistics of these problems. An example, again, being the pandemic we're in now where there's shortages. And according to economic theory that I used to teach and still talk about, uh, shortages only exist because of price controls. Now, we have price controls on some things. It, we have anti-gouging laws. But is that really the reason that, that some things are in short supply? And people say, no, it's the supply chain. Why is that supply chain so problematic? Why is it so hard to rearrange? So those kind of questions, I think, require deep, thorough study. And I think the Chinese issue also involves that kind of study. And it, it's not the nature of most economists to do that kind of work. And it then generally doesn't get rewarded. Yeah, and actually, when you mention now the, the shortages, that leads me to one of my big topics, and that is actually socialist economics. That was always also totally left uh, sort of untouched by, by, the, by the Nobel Prize. Uh, and that existed actually for 20, 20 odd years since the formation, foundation of the Nobel Prize in 1969. Uh, and when you mention shortages, it comes obviously for obvious reasons, it comes to mind. But what was uh, interesting, and I think uh, for, again, for myself personally, until I read Cornei and the economics are shortage, uh, all of that information, of course, I had it as well. And other people had. It. And many people wrote about socialist economics, but uh, uh, to me that was for you know a little bit like what Keynes did with the general theory is that ability to sort of uh, put it in a systemic framework and to understand the outcomes as a result of rational behavior of all the agents. And shortage is indeed a rational behavior. So it is not in the socialist economies. It was not some kind of strange behavior, I mean, outcome. It's a rational behavior when you had salt budget constraint where each enterprise tries to hoard as much inputs, whether it is labor or raw materials and everything else. So you have what actually, what was really, I think, great in Corney was the, the simultaneous presence of a glut where you you have actually too much stuff in your company and you have a shortage on our side because everybody is bidding for the same thing. And, you know, I found, for example, in the, in the U.S., in a few cases, for example, I think that's actually when, I, uh, when my son was applying to the uh, high school in, in Washington, this was exactly the same phenomenon. Because, because of a shortage of space, everybody applies to 10 different schools. And the schools actually uh, incentivize you to apply for more because then each of them, the intake is lower, I mean, percentage-wise, so they look more exclusive. So, you know, you have a totally rational behavior from all the agents, but the outcome is on one hand shortage and a glut. And, uh, you know, I, I, just one more example. I was actually, when I, I, st I worked on Poland, actually, when I uh, start, started working in the World Bank. And, uh, uh, why you always had in socialist countries, you had uh, uh, sort of uh, export controls because many of the products were subsidized. So if you subsidize your products, you don't want East Germans to come and buy sugar and oil and gasoline in your country. So what you have to do then, you have, of course, to stop the outflow of subsidies. So you see then immediately how an economy will tend to become autarkic simply because of a huge subsidization of things.
you know, uh, subsidies were 15% of GDP in Poland in the, in the 1980s. So, you know, there, you know, it is obviously rational behavior on all sides, but it shows you how certain outcomes that would seem from, uh, from external point of view, like really strange, are the product, uh, the result of actions that are fully understandable within economics, sort of our view of the world and economic behavior of, of individual uh, agents or you know, people. So these are also the issues that I think actually have been left out. Yeah. So I'm actually an expert on socialist uh, economics. It's uh, it's it doesn't work well. So I'm done. Uh, that's my uh, analysis. That's yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and there's some, you know, but that's a, actually it's not a bad starting place. No, no, that's actually, basically, that's the view. It's basically, okay, this is something which we don't care about because it didn't work out well. We will not study it. But that's, that's wrong because this is, you know, this is a huge economic and political system that existed, that worked, and then we have to understand it. You know, and it's economic system, like if you look medieval economic systems, it's also another economic system that we need to understand. And if you go to Rome or if you go to slavery, it's yet another economic system. So we cannot just take whatever has happened in the last 30 or 40 years and say, well, that's the only economic system that actually interests me. And the definition of economics is what works in, you know, whatever, 10 countries in the world that cover about 8% of the world population. And this is what I'm going to study. And that's what's going to be the Finish economics. That's what de facto is happening. Yeah, so um, the person you mentioned is Kornai, K-O-R-N-A-I. I've never heard of him, which is a strike against me, it, it seems. Um, but your comment about understanding things that are alien to us or you know, in the past, um, just to bring a maybe a, a strange example, I'm thinking about the power of literature – to help us understand um, consequences. So I'm going to give you two examples which come to mind in this conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One is uh, the book that EconTalk listeners know I've talked about in great depth, which is In the First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's a story of what happened yeah. to intellectuals, scientists, mathematicians, and engineers who were put to work in the name of improving the tyr- tyrannical and authoritarian powers of Stalin. And if I said to you, you know, Stalin really, it was really hard to live in the Soviet Union under Stalin. You'd say, yeah, yeah, he was a dictator. But until you've read a book like that or a book like uh, Forever Flowing by Vasily Grossman, you don't really, unless you have friends who live there who've told you about it, just to say, yeah, it was horrible or people were afraid or, you know, it was kind of corrupt because rewards weren't handed out in a decentralized way. I think until you've actually heard at least a story about it of that level of, of quality of, of literature, you can't really get any idea of how, how horrifying it really was. And similarly, and maybe I'm being unfair here, and maybe this is a stretch, but to me, when you talk about socialism or capitalism, and you say, yeah, this is how it works, and we give it a tweet version of how it works, I think we're missing so much of, of the richness of it that I mean, the example you just gave about hoarding, it's just a small example of how an enterprise in, a, in the Soviet Union would hoard material. And we understand how often it would sometimes make bad allocation decisions because they were rewarded, say, on the weight of their output rather than, say, profitability. We all know that. We put that in the back of our mind. But I think the day-to-day texture of how decisions were made 
teaches you something you can't really appreciate without that fuller picture. And I think that's incredibly important. You know, it's actually uh, interesting, Russ, that you mentioned uh, the power of literature. I was uh, recently in a conversation that was also like this one, uh, online conversation uh, with um, uh, Daniel Shavira from NYU, who is uh, one of the famous tax specialists, but in his free time interest is... uh, uh, he reads a lot, reads literature, and actually he had a book called Literature and Inequality, and it's a story of um, nine uh, nine books, starts with Jane Austen and ends with American literature with Mark Twain and Theodore Dreiser, uh, 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 showing how uh, social inequality and how relations between classes and individuals and so on were really captured in these big novels, mostly European and American novels of the 19th and the early 20th century. And it's actually quite extraordinary. I love the book. You know, I read four out of nine books that he has uh, He has there. He has Stendhal, for example, and so on. And I use the same thing in uh, my The Haves and The Have Nots, where I use the Jane Austen, The Pride and Prejudice, and also Anna Karenina to actually uh, situate, for example, Mr. Darcy is like in a top one, we don't even know exactly, but the top one-tenth or even less of, of, of top one percent in terms of income and, and wealth. And of course, John, I mean, uh, uh, Elizabeth Bennett is the top one percent. So you really, what we see in the book, we see really a sliver of the English income distribution. And we see a big gap between them, which of course is true. You know, there is a big gap between me and, and uh, Bill Gates, you know, but we are all in the top of the US income distribution, you know, so that's what we see. And of course, we see in Jane Austen that if, the, if um, uh, Elizabeth doesn't marry, as you know, that actually then entails kick in and actually she would go back to something which would be the median wage at that time, which was like, you know, one twentieth, one fortieth, I don't remember, of what she had at uh, uh, with the family. So she would really lose a lot by not marrying uh, Mr. Darcy. With Anna Karenina, the story is somewhat similar. And then I recently read, unrelatedly, and I mentioned that in this conversation with uh, Shavira's book, uh, John Lukacs, who was one of the, you know, big American historians, especially of the World War II, uh, mentions in one of his books, uh, he has a small book uh, on basically on learn. I mean, the role of history. And then there was an essay of learning exactly what you were saying about Solzhenitsyn, and he actually uses Solzhenitsyn as an example, of learning about historical events from the great literature. So uh, John Lukacs is a very interesting guy because he has really uh, very negative views on some authors and very positive views on others. For example, he doesn't like Tolstoy. He says Tolstoy's war and peace really does not reflect well the war of, 1912, of 1812. Uh, he loves Solzhenitsyn. Uh, anyway, whatever he loves doesn't, doesn't matter, but really uh, learning history or using uh, big uh, time, I mean, great literature to learn about history and using the great, great literature to learn about social relations and inequality. There are these two themes that actually came suddenly together simply because, as I said, I read John Lukacs' yeah. book. So really, we have here lots of way to learn. So I'm reading, uh, trying to read. It's slow going because of other obligations. But I'm trying to read Crime and Punishment. Uh, having read... Um, I read it a long time. I read it when I was 20 years old. Yes. But then I went back. I went, I had never read 
Brothers Karamazov, and I it was one of the. I, I read that about two years ago, and it was it t- t- took the top of my head off. I, it, it's such an extraordinary book. Crime and Punishment isn't as good, I don't think. I'm three fifths of the way through it. Uh, but one thing that struck me about it is that it is such a vivid look at the lower class of, of Russian life, yeah. people who are in debt, people living you know day to day, people who are failing just just terribly and tragically at at just getting by, uh, and and that must have been an amazing. I don't know how he did it. I, I don't know how he. It may be inaccurate. It's reasonable. To worry in these, it's not you can't do real social science from these things. The, the knowledge that you gain is inherently uh, subjective and maybe false. But I think it's fascinating because the part that's not false is that we know there are people who struggle in life, and it's easy not to think about them if you live a certain lifestyle that that you and I both have. And I think it's easy not to see them. And reading literature can help you remember to see them. I think it's not unimportant. You know, my uh, argument in uh, the haves and the have-nots, why actually I think the literature of that kind is uh, uh, trustworthy, is the following. Uh, I was actually looking for numbers. I was looking for, you know, incomes, wages, uh, salaries, uh, prices. If you really don't know your topic uh, well, you will be revealed, you know, because you're writing at, you know, you mentioned Dostoevsky. He was writing actually both of these books as phaetons in a, like a, a production, monthly production. So actually he had- Serialized. They were serialized, serialized, you're saying. Yes, serialized. So he had actually, uh, he had to make money. So he was writing sort of serialized stuff. And uh, if he was really totally wrong, on some numbers, well, of course, people would notice and they would laugh at it. So I think actually the very fact that they were, uh, you know, that uh, uh, we can be really, we can believe that Jane Austen is giving us reasonable numbers because otherwise people at that time would have found that quite extraordinary, very wrong. Uh, So that was my argument and I was actually into the numbers. And uh, I then started talking to my students and other people, you know, for other literatures. Um, I said, okay, can you find really in other languages uh, similar things? Because really the French um, and English literature is full, much more even than Russian, full of uh, data. And of course, uh, you know, Balzac is a prime example of that. You can actually really write economic history of that time simply from Basel's novels. Uh, but then it's more difficult to find. Uh, you know, it, apparently in many other literatures, there is not that much, um, uh, uh, so many basically numbers on, on income and other, you know, economic categories, which then of course leads you to the following conclusion, that the level of commercialization and uh, uh, de facto capitalism is, has been much greater in obviously 19th century Europe than it was in more agricultural societies like Russia or Africa or Asia and so on. So this is, uh, I'm by the way, I was not reading much, uh, I'm not reading much uh, fiction these days, but uh, I took um, a book that I read before, which is also very revealing. It's called The The Makioka Sisters by Tanizaki, a Japanese writer. That's what I'm reading now. And it's the upper class family in the late 1930s in Osaka. And again, it is extremely, I mean, uh, informative and and revealing of the relationship, for example, gender issues are, you know, extremely well, I mean, 
reflected or discussed in the book. And also money, because that's the family that was really at the top and then it's slowly declining. And what is the role of different family members and all that. Nevertheless, I say it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly sizable book. And one learns, uh, I mean, one learns a lot. I actually never knew, I mean, many of these details, including like, for example, competition between Osaka and Tokyo, uh, in terms even of language and uh, people disliking from Osaka going to Tokyo. I had no idea about that. Well, I'm going to take us on a different digression, and then we'll come back to the big questions. I, I never thought about this question of, of serialization. I mean, I've thought about it. I've always thought, you know, it's a, it's a negative. It encourages cliffhangers and, and uh, drawing things out and turning things into a soap opera. And, and it raised the question of, you know, one of my favorite writers is Dickens. Uh, and Dickens was a serialist. He had to write all of his, I think most, if not all of his novels were written as magazine installments. And of course, that changes how you write. What would what would those books be like if they were paid the way modern authors of fiction are paid for producing a final product? But your insight about the the reliability based on the fact that they were sort of getting a, a beta version all yes. the way through is fantastic. Sure. And and I don't even know the answer to this. And I, any English literature people out there, let me know. When they published the book versions of these uh, novels, did they merely connect and reprint each weekly or monthly or bi-weekly version? Or did they do any editing of the whole thing when it was done? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I actually, I really would believe that in the case of Dostoevsky, because he had really kind of a difficult life, although I was in his apartment, for example, in St. Petersburg, which is actually quite nice and large and so on. But I think that he probably, that was probably just put together, you know, what the way that it was serialized. Uh, that's what I would guess. But for Tolstoy, I know that actually Tolstoy made various, like in uh, War and Peace, he made uh, lots of uh, uh, additional uh, changes. So the version <laughs> that we have now is not exactly the same as the first published version. Fascinating. But his life was very different. You know, he had not uh, he had no need to make money like every you know fortnight as, huh. as Dostoevsky had. Fascinating, yeah. Um, well, I encourage re- reader uh, listeners to read uh, certainly uh, Brothers Karamazov. It's only about nine hundred and fifty pages. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, interestingly, I, I read the Constance Garnett uh, translation because that's what I have, and I still think it's a pretty good translation. And I say that without any knowledge of Russian. But I say it based on some other uh, translations I've read that struck me as, I don't know, didn't care for him so much. But anyway. I, al- I also read her translation. I know that was actually, there is a new translation. There are like issues with hers, but I found it very good. Yeah, I'm just going to say that. So you, it's cheap. You can find it out there. Uh, I want to make sure we're, we're hitting the hour mark here. I, w- I want to make sure we talk about yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the issues you raised, which, which fascinates me and is particularly timely, which is slavery. So if you talk to, I think, to most neoclassical economists, they will say that slavery was, quote, a mistake economically, not just morally. They'll all say it was a mistake morally, ethically, but they'll add and say it was a mistake economically because, well, mostly they'd say, I think, incentives, that, that it's a very ine- slavery is a very inefficient way to, to, to work, uh, say, the land. Uh, I have, that, that's not a, that's not a uh, case closer. That doesn't end the discussion. No. Uh, that's not a. I mean, it's it's an interesting point. It's relevant, uh, but but I think 
neoclassical economists that I know would dismiss the importance of slavery as the determinant of America's economic success in from colonial times to the present. They would say it's irrelevant. If anything, it's a negative. It, it was a harmful. And yet I think it's widely believed in and I know it's widely believed in the black community, and it's widely believed, I think, by many others outside of the black community, that slavery was actually essential that it was to, to, the, to the success. And, of course, this is – it's ethically important. It ties into the question of reparations, and it more, most importantly ties into our understanding of, of history that you're talking about. What do you think uh, – when you, when you invoke slavery, what did you have in mind in your big questions? No, I, th- I had exactly in mind what you said. You know, I have not studied it and I have no sort of view to give one, one way or another. It, it does strike me as a little bit odd when I do hear uh, this general dismissal of slavery that was a mistake because it's kind of strange. Why would people, thousands or actually millions of them, make the same mistake all the yeah. time? Why would they go and enslave people if it was really bad? I mean, for themselves. Yeah, for themselves. Know, that yeah. they were losing money. So wh- why would they do, keep on doing that? And, you know, it's not only the American problem. It's the problem of Brazil. It's the problem of slavery, which, of course, existed in the U- I mean in England and was even encouraged it was France it was slavery in Haiti you know so it was not and it was Arab slavery before that of Africans and it was slavery for example in Byzantium Byzantine Empire which came slaves came in those days from Russia so you know it, it just cannot be that uh, Millions of people over 2,000 years, at least, are actually more than 4,000 years or 8,000, kept on making a mistake. Now you can say, well, actually, with more, with bigger, I mean, higher development, it was in an efficient way, but it lasted very long time, and it was stopped really through wars and legal action, which was very difficult. So if it was so bad, how did you have to have a war to take away the slaves from those guys who were making a mistake of not having them as a, a legally free labor? So I think. Uh, a priori just doesn't make sense. Now, you know, I, I have not studied it and I don't know it, but I see that it has played a big role and leaving even the US case aside, take the UK case, which obviously it has played a big role in the in the UK expansion, ability to extract surplus from many, you know, places, including big plantations and so on. So that's, a, a pri- it seems to me, a priori position without studying it, having studied it empirically. Well, I'm glad to see you have a neoclassical side, Bronco, which is your, your <laughs> observation that something that persisted for so long must have made some kind of sense. But you raised, I think, the, the, the deeper point, which is – and I think it's a very relevant, tragically relevant point today, which is the role of, of colonialism. We all understand that colonialism yeah. was probably good for the colonialists and not so good for the people who they took from. But how big? How important? Was it decisive? Was it just a sideshow? Uh, you know, people can argue about this. I think they argue about it in a fairly ineffective way. They argue about it as sort of a, I don't know, ideological, social, emotional way rather than a more analytical way. And I think we would profit greatly from having a better understanding. And just to make bring your point home about history yeah. and its importance, and anybody who says history doesn't matter is not paying attention. Because it's all we're talking about right now in America. We're talking about the last 250 Absolutely. years. And in Europe and in, yeah. and these, and in Africa and, and in South America where colonialism, colonial, colonial imperialism was so devastating. Uh, and, and yet some sure. countries rose, did well afterwards. Some did badly afterwards. 
we we desperately need to understand this to be able to talk intelligently about the world today. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, again, one of these big topics on which I don't think there will be ever a unanimity of views. But uh, 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 learning more or actually having better substantiated hypothesis is a big Plus, and I think actually it, I'm somewhat encouraged because we do study that much more now. We study the, the, the linkages between imperialism and capitalism. This is also obvious in some sense. You know, it just happened at the same time, you know, which is not an argument that there is a causality, but I think there is a certain causality as well because there was a surplus that was made, you know, from colonial exploitations or colonial invasions. And, you know, that history is, uh, is present all the time. Now, very often, going back to the China example, you have Chinese either scholars or other people raise this issue, which is um, uh, really true, is that the China, of course, as you know, sent this huge fleet, which was much larger than Columbus fleet in terms of people and number of uh, ships and all of that, but with entirely different objective, you know, they were neither trying to convert anybody, nor were trying actually to plunder. Uh, they were basically showing, showcasing their own power, picked up as, you know, uh, weird animals, uh, uh, you know, they, they did some trading and then went back to China and then for internal political reasons, then uh, the, the emperor later, the next one actually burned the fleet and so on, but which was of course a huge uh, mistake. But, you know, the approach was entirely different. So that's, of course, we are still then, I mean, nowadays, we are dealing with these two different approaches and, of course, people would tell you, well, look, this is what the Chinese approach was and this was the the Western approach. So it's still today relevant for us. So the history is always with us, you know, it's it's actually, again, we go back to what was said before, is that if we just studied the last 40 years or whatever, 50 years of history in one part of the world, that's not really sufficient. So I'm going to give two more examples related to this question of oppression uh, and and thinking about its, its effect on economic outcomes. Uh, in the middle of World War II, the Nazis continued to kill Jews even as their fortunes declined in the war. They continued to protect the railroads. They continued to build railroads. They continued to to devote trains to transporting Jews when they were losing the war. Did that, was that a tiny impact on the final outcome for the, for the, for the Nazis? Or was that just a small thing? I have no idea. I'd love to know. And similarly, in the Gulag, when Stalin's imprisoning millions of people, many of them may be the most creative and talented. What did that do to Russian Soviet economic output? Um, and I'm going to add one more. World War I, England and France and the West in general drafted very in a very egalitarian way. So some of the most talented people in the economic sense of the word served mm-hmm. in the armed forces in ways that in the past before – democracy right, they, they would have avoided service yeah you know great poets were killed great uh other people were killed who normally would have escaped that did that matter is that how much did that contribute to the decline of england as a world power or was it the loss of their colonial empire those are questions would be good to know i'd like and i'm very interested now maybe now to be clear i think we have to be fair those questions are not fully answerable as we've both admitted right a number of times but we live in a world right now, an academic world, where people who try to answer those questions are discouraged. 
And I think I hear what you're saying is saying we ought to encourage them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, when you measure, for example, a gulag, you know, it was also, uh, it was um, obviously work camp, where which is not very different from slavery because yes, correct. You actually had people who were working there and were not pay, even paid; they were actually just paid in in food, you and, know, food. A and little bit of food, that, not much food. <laughs> And, uh, and actually, it was a huge, I mean, incredible waste of, uh, of uh, you know, human uh, uh, talent and human uh, labor. And uh, with also very little concern about whether they would survive or not survive. And as you know, of course, depended also where you were. If you were in the Arctic Circle, uh, Shalamov, for example, Vadim Shalamov, whom I read, was actually there. That was Kolima, the one of yeah. the worst camps. Yeah. And so then you were really basically toast. It's a death sentence. And if you, and if you were somewhere else, which was, and actually many people were, I mean, if you look at people who, for example, were sent in Kazakhstan and so on, the situation was not as bad. And actually there was not as, uh, uh, the, the, the omnipresence of the state was not as, as great. So there are a variety of conditions, but nevertheless, the waste of human uh, potential, I think was incredible. I think the same is true with, uh, uh, well, if you take actually human potential also of Jews in Germany, that's an incredible loss for, for Germany. It's basically you are destroying a significant part of your intelligentsia, how educated labor force, and so on. So there are really, uh, I mean, such wasteful, uh, from the point of view of the interested country, yeah. wasteful uh, destruction. Um, Gender, of course, is another issue. Like countries that leave like half a percent, half of their labor force totally unutilized because they don't want to, you know, employ women. You know, so there are all these uh, incredible inefficiencies that they do exist, and so, we don't study them. I'll let you close on a point we haven't talked about yet. There are other things you mentioned in your your PowerPoint and your tweet storm. We can refer uh, list interested listeners to, but I want to I want to talk. I want to use that last point as, as, a, as a stepping off point to a deeper issue that you raise. You argue in your writing on this that economics should go back to its roots. Its roots being that Smith, Marx, Marshall, Ricardo, they were interested in understanding how people thrive materially. And that should be what we remember. We should remember that as our as our heritage and what we ought to be focused on because it's often what people care about. I just want to add one caveat to that and I'll let you make mm -hmm. your case for the for for your for your view which is you know I don't think we want to I'm I'm a big fan of liberating women for to choose the life that they want to choose. Uh but I I don't think the goal should be to maximize say the size of the labor force. So the fact that people women and men choose to take leisure, say, and, and make the economy smaller is mostly a good thing, not a bad thing, because the goal of life isn't to make the economy as big as possible. So I, I'm curious how, I suspect you agree with me, so I'm curious how you reconcile your Smithian, Marxist, Ricardian, Marshallian urge with the fact that material life is only part of what we care about. And if we're not careful, we're going to spend too much time thinking as economists about that and ignoring the things that say can't be measured that we've all been, we've been talking about a lot through this conversation, which I've enjoyed immensely. But I'm curious how you reconcile that your encouragement of of looking at that side of the big picture, which I only think is part of the big picture. So 
take it away. I, I, yeah, I totally am. Okay, I understand your question. Let me I mean, may, break it into two. You already did. Uh, I think that, of course, we should go back to the roots, and the roots are very clear. It is actually economics is a social science whose objective is to study the evolution of economic systems. When I say systems, that's not only capitalism, but that's all the others that I mentioned before. So that's the one point. The second goes to back to Marshall, is to st- uh, in, improve or the, I mean, uh, um, uh, science of ordinary life. So it's actually improvement, betterment, actually to use Adam Smith, betterment of human condition. So these are two things, you know, study of the economic, socioeconomic systems and improvement of material human condition. Now go to your second question. How do I reconcile the two? I actually reconcile it in my own mind a little bit uh, following uh, what you actually mentioned when you discuss Adam Smith and the dichotomy between the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. The wealth of nations, as you argue, and I think it's a very reasonable proposition, really deals with our relationship with the wider world and our relationship as economic agents. The theory of moral sentiments deals with our relationship with family, friends, relatives, tribe, clan, and the past, and so forth. And what I actually find, and that goes back to the discussion that we had about capitalism alone in chapter five, is that first, the wealth of nation type of interaction is gradually encroaching more and more, or commercial society or capitalism society, capitalist society is really making inroads in that first part. And I totally agree with you that we should not put like a big objective, just maximize GDP per capita. But what really happens is with encroachment of that part of uh, the wealth of nations onto the theory of moral sentiments, we are de facto doing that because each individual is trying to maximize more and more his or her income. And to do that, he is really taking the interactions from that that external world and bringing them more and more in our internal world. So that's why my sort of pessimistic side about commercialization comes from. It's not that actually there will be some kind of claim on our time. It's basically that we are doing it ourselves and we are actually changing these two proportions. And I would be totally in agreement with you that, of course, I mean, we should pay more attention to leisure. Maybe we should actually do many other activities that, that are not commercialized at all. But I think the society that we live in uh, does push us in the direction of doing that, unfortunately, less and less. So that's the you know pessimistic uh, view. And uh, that's how I reconcile I'm not sure if I've convinced you, but that's how I reconciled the two. I think actually, honestly, I think that Adam Smith saw that the same way, but he might have believed that, uh, I don't think he would have believed that actually the, 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 this uh, external relations or the relations of commercialization would go as far as they did. I just want to let you expand on that just for a minute before we close, because for listeners who are lazy and don't want to go back to your previous conversation on Econ Talk on Chapter Five, uh, just give us give us a minute or two on how commercialization impinges on our relationships in our family and friends. And I I asked that, and I'll ask the, the same make the same point I made I think when we talked before, which is that. Oh, I hear people say, oh, capitalism is bad because it, it objectifies everything, makes everything a transaction. And I'm thinking, well, no, it doesn't really. That's just when I go to the store. 
But you actually have some, I think, insights into this that very few others I've never read before about this concern you have. So just I want you to just lay that out in a minute or two. Yes, it's actually it goes back to as you said chapter five, and uh, what my argument there was that that many of the uh, activities and, and things that we used in the past to do for free have now become commercialized. Obviously, I had Airbnb as a case in point. I had uh, uh, you know our use of cards to basically our own cards to do all kinds of, uh, you know, like taxing, uh, uh, Uber and others. In other words, what I, th- what I see as commonality in those things is that uh, 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 personal goods, which are not objects, which were not object of commercialization, now become what, you know, Marx calls capital because they're actually, they are, they are no longer personal good that you use for your own needs. They become something that is actually being used to make money, to make profit. And while uh, we uh, might be reluctant to do that, and I think I mentioned that in the previous conversation, you know, I have not rented, I'm sitting in my own, uh, you know, apartment, I have a house, I've not rented it. But once it has a shadow price, and it does now have, because I can see what I can make, uh, gradually I would, I start thinking about this. And there is a point at which I'm going to join that you know, commercialized society. So it's just a point where I, it, where I will do it. And then, of course, likewise, our leisure activities, our many of activities that used to be, like we have influencer now and others, that started as a leisure activity, but then gradually became commercialized. And we now, when we think of these things, we think of them in a sort of a commercial sense. I'm not again saying that every interaction that we have on the internet is driven by sort of a commercial, you know, uh, Objective, but once that commercial objective or commercial value becomes known, it actually influences your behavior. So that's where I saw, and of course, as, as we discussed before, I see it also in a legal sense that the legal um, issues are also impinging or inter- being introduced into family life. A number of these non disclosure statements, for example, which are quite extraordinary because essentially what you're saying there is that you're basically giving up the right of free speech. Uh, for a, an amount of money. It's, it's quite also extraordinary. It's actually basically uh, selling the right to free, to, of, of free speech. You know, when I say I will, I will sign a non-disclosure agreement, that's what I'm doing. Actually, I'm just uh, selling it. So the neoclassical economist in me, the Chicago-trained economist as well, if it makes you better off, what's the cost? It's, a, it's, all, it's all improvement. But I think your point, which I find... Um, I think about it more and more lately is that yeah there's a there's a texture of life issue there in terms of how you the day to day life it goes on if you're constantly thinking about opportunity cost so you want to borrow my car and I'm thinking oh that's going to cost me so many dollars because I could have put it up on Uber or or some kind of rideshare device yeah, right I you gave the example of of walking a dog you know I walk I I've got some leisure oh I could walk a dog for somebody and make some some money people do. And the fact that, that you and I don't do that isn't the point. It's that we haven't hit that price yet. When the price gets high enough, then we all become uh, – I think part of it really for me is we're all – I don't think we want to live in a world where we're all maximizing all the time. And uh, the economic man is when women are a little bit in that, in that framework, but it's maybe not so healthy. No, I, I would agree, but I would actually uh, – I'm not uh, – uh, 
uh, how should I say, I was in data last exchange, I was more of a Chicago guy than you because I see this as inevitable. And I'm not uh, passing a judgment on that. I just see it as in, inevitable. And I see not only inevitability, but I see our own behavior as essentially feeding that. Uh, so I was more of a of a maximizing guy. You rather saw greater advantages of us enjoying more free time and being, uh, you know, nicer as people and not thinking of these things. But you know, you agree with me that if the price, for example, of of uh, Uber becomes extremely high, I mean, value that you can get. Now, the fact that I come and ask you, give me your car for, can I borrow it for nothing for two hours? You will do it because you're a generous person. But in my mind, I would think, well, look, I took this car from Ross for two hours. He could have made 100 bucks. So I should give him a small present for that, right? But in the past, I, or a big one, <laughs> I would never think of this because there was no value on that. Yeah. And I would not actually give you any present. I would say, thank you very much. I would put gas back to that I used, but there will be nothing else. But once there is a price, a shadow price that I know, I, I start, even if you don't, but I would start thinking about this and I would think that you do think as well. So, you know, that's how we, you know, we get commercialized. Yeah, but the, the you know, the, the younger economist uh, that I used to be would say, this is, all, this is all improvement because it means everything gets used yeah. more efficiently. And I've come as I've gotten older to believe that that's not the goal of life, not even close to the goal of life. And sometimes, you know, I, I'm not paying you for this Bronco. We, we did send you that headset. But I enjoy our conversation. <laughs> and I don't know who got more out of it. Uh, yeah, can I, I keep it? Yeah, you can keep it. Okay. Enjoy. Good. See, I get paid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, although Plantronics provides it, we, we cover the shipping, which is not trivial. So we got it to you quickly and promptly. Uh, econ Talk does. I don't provide it personally. But I used to. I have in the past because I wanted guests to be here. Well, but anyway, my point is, is that I don't think it's healthy for us always to be thinking. Of, I'll, I'll close yeah. with this part, let you react to it, then we'll, we'll, we'll end. But I like to say that in a good marriage, you don't keep score. And I think part of what, yeah. what this commercialization and putting a shadow price on things does is that everything is in the scorecard now. And I don't think that's so healthy, maybe, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I'm really not passing much of a judgment. I just think it is inevitable. That's how commercial society works. And I think it would really move further and further. Uh, whether there would be a point where actually we would fight back, it could happen. It could actually maybe go, go too far and that would make our lives uh, not miserable, but actually uh, maybe economically better, but maybe in a social sense uh, worse. So, you know... We'll see. My guest today has been Bronco Milanovic. Bronco, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. It's always a pleasure to have to talk with you. And even if we don't know exactly which way the conversation goes, it somehow flows like a river and somewhere. That's the goal. <laughs> talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.